Uh, welcome to yet another Rahalastava Book Club. I'm delighted to be, enjoyed, to be joined by Stephanie Merritt, who is going to be telling us about her fantastic novel, Storm. Hello, Stephanie. Hello. How are you? How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm, yeah, I'm good too. Let's talk, <laughs> let's talk good. in unison all the time for the rest of the podcast. That will be fun. Um, for people who don't know who you are, I, I know a little bit about you, but um, who are you, Stephanie Merritt? Tell me a bit about yourself. <laughs> Is that what, on an existential level? <laughs> it can uh, be. You can take it out. Well, I am a um, journalist and author. I write for The Observer. I used to work on their books pages. Uh, I used to be the um, deputy literary editor on The Observer for many years, and I was also their comedy critic, which is how you and I met many years ago. Um, and I then, t- well, I was writing novels as well, uh, kind of while doing that. Um, and then about, when was it? 2008, I um, I started writing a historical thriller series, which uh, meant that I could give up the day job. So I still do little bits of journalism and reviewing here and there, but I'm mostly writing full-time now. So I wrote um, this historical series under a pseudonym, uh, SJ Paris, and then I also do contemporary thrillers under my own name, which is what the the most recent one is. So that's... And what's the what's the thinking behind having a pseudonym for for the historical stuff? Is there a reason for that, or is it just uh, good fun? No, there is a reason, and it, it really is as basic as uh, marketing. It's got I'd done before I started doing those. I had written three books under my own name, and they were quite quite different types of books. Um, and I was also writing as a journalist under my own name, and so to launch the series, it's often in publishing. It's it can just be a bit easier if you're completely changing direction. Yeah. Um, sometimes to launch you almost as a, an entirely new author. So that's what we did. And, and the pseudonym is, um, it's more obvious, well, it's obviously gender neutral. So we hoped yeah. that the, the series would kind of appeal, um, have a broader appeal than perhaps uh, one written, you know, just um, that was obviously under a woman's name. Uh, and uh, yeah, and it, it's also enabled me to have kind of two different strands of my writing. So so I can do these. So when people pick up an S.J. Paris novel, they know that it's going to be one of these historical thrillers. And, sure. um, uh, and that, yeah, that's a shame, though, isn't it? It's weird that in this day and age, that's still. Does that mean you think the the Stephanie Merritt novels are more aimed at women, or is or is is you don't? It doesn't matter for for these ones. Well, it's sort of weird that it matters. I'd like them. to think it doesn't matter. And in fact, there's been a lot of discussion about this because um, the Women's Prize, which happened last week, they had a big campaign this year around getting more men to read books by women because, um, I mean, obviously you're very enlightened, but uh, there's a lot of men out there who statistically, a lot of data shows, there's been a lot of data on um, book buying and and, uh, that kind of thing, those sort of demographics, um, that men will uh, predominantly buy books by other men. And in fact, it was interesting because last week, this Women's Prize campaign also coincided with lots of gift guides around Father's Day and uh, somebody, you know, I saw a few people on social media commenting that, um, you know, most of the Father's Day book related gift guides were all recommending books by other men. So, um, and I've certainly noticed that when I do book festivals, the the audiences for the historical series are pretty much 50-50 um, men and women. And when I do the books, the, the more contemporary ones, they tend to be almost overwhelmingly um Women, and that might just be because right. of the content, but I think also it does. You know, I, I think just um, instinctively, a lot of men will, you know, pick up a, a book that looks as if it's a bit more 
kind of masculine or a bit more manly. And I think with these books, they've they've designed them very well to kind of try and appeal across the board. So there, there is nothing manly about reading. That's <laughs> what men have to realise. <laughs> They were already feminized by even picking up a book at all of any kind, even Andy McNabb. So, uh, no, that's, uh, that's do any of the men walk out when they sit and shout at you when they realize you're not uh, a, a sort of bespectacled, bespectacled old historian man, as, as well, they maybe imagine? They, they haven't walked out. No, usually they're quite pleasantly surprised. Although, I was at Hay recently, and there was a, a guy in the audience who said, um, and this did surprise me because I've I've written six of these books now, and yeah. there's always been a picture of me on the cover. It's not it's never been a secret that it's a pseudonym. So um, yeah. they so so this guy was in the audience, and he piped up at the end and said, "You know, I've read all of your books, and I had no idea until today that you were a woman." Um, and I'm hoping that he hadn't met me in the past. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I asked him how that could be. And he said, well, because I read on a Kindle. So on a Kindle, you don't get the jacket. You don't really see. Yeah. You're not looking at the author's name every time you pick it up. Um, and it just hadn't sort of occurred to him to to do any kind of, you know, biographical digging. So I thought that's interesting because obviously Kindles do change the way we yes. relate to a book. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, I hadn't realized that that was, you know, that was still possible. But yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about um, the new book Storm uh, again. When when you're doing when we're talking about novels and thrillers with lots of twists and stuff, and I'm obviously uh, it's uh, it's important not to give away too much of what's yeah. going to happen, which makes it a little bit harder to talk about. But how do you uh, sort of pitch and describe? Uh, this book? Um, well, I kind of like the term um, psychological suspense, which is, it, it's sort of a, it's not a classic murder mystery. There is a murder in it. Um, and the nature of the murder is, you know, I hope kind of uh, hidden until um, quite late in the book. So it, it, it's a kind of a murder mystery in that sense. But my, I suppose my um, model for this book and the, the one that I did uh, as myself that preceded it. Um, I've always loved Ruth Rendell's Barbara Vine novels, and they tend to, they're kind of what I would call psychological suspense. And what she does with those is to sort of flip the idea of a detective story. So you're not um, with the policeman or woman who is trying to solve the crime. You are with the people who are in the midst of the crime. So, you know, either people who have committed a crime and are trying to cover it up or people who have been accused of a crime or have in, are in some way associated with it. So the police are kind of on the other side and you're, and you're there, you know, in the midst of um, a group of people in this case, in the case of Storm, uh, a group of old university friends who've gone away for a weekend anniversary house party in France and, um, and then an unexpected guest turns up and it starts to bring to the surface uh, secrets and, and lies that have been buried among this group for the last 20 years. So that's sort of the idea of it. Um, is yeah, and they're quite, they're quite, and even the, the, the character we're sort of following, um, Joe, is is quite a flawed and not particular, I mean, out of all of them, she's a bit more likeable than most <laughs> of them, uh, but of the older generation anyway, uh, but uh, she's not particularly uh, likeable or... or um, morally, well, it's a bit. She's a bit morally ambiguous, I suppose, yeah. with, with everything else they go on, which is quite interesting to have a to have a sort of protagonist that's that we can't fully get behind. I, I like it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was. I think my um, editors were concerned about that, and it is one of those questions that comes up about you know how much do you have to like the protagonist of a book in order to be rooting for them, um, or, or of a drama. You know, you think about um, something like Breaking Bad, and you know Walter White does some terrible, morally terrible things, and yet we are kind of on his side because we've been following him, and um, I wanted that with this group of people. I mean, they are all. Um, extremely flawed and and yet they are people who kind of in their public life they've all got sort of relatively high status jobs and they're people who in their public life would be seen to be certainly by the right-wing press as kind of do-gooders you know there's a kind of there's a human rights lawyer there's a, a um, tv producer who makes dramas about the underclass and uh, and then there's a kind of uh, ai tech billionaire and they were lefty liberal journalists. So they're all people who would be seen as kind of doing, you know, doing good in the world or believing themselves to do good. And yet they've got these um, kind of deep moral flaws in their own characters and things that they have covered up and lied about. Um, and Joe, I was interested in, in writing about um, somebody who is in she's kind of still in the shadow of grief. She's lost her husband. That's not a spoiler. She's, she was, you know, widowed before the book starts. And it's a year after the death of her husband that, uh, she goes away with his old group of friends on this holiday. And, um, and she's still grieving. So she's somebody who is kind of, she's not got a huge amount of kind of impetus or, or get up and go. She's still in the really quite sort of sunk in her grief. Um, which was something that interested me. And she is also someone who has perhaps put aside her own qualms and doubts about this group of people because she likes the perks of kind of being involved in that group. Um, and I, I just like the idea of uh, writing a heroine, in particular a woman who's not necessarily... Um, she doesn't necessarily live up to the sort of the idea of, you know, how women should behave or the, this idea of being likable. She is a kind of prickly character. Um, and yeah. yet I do, I do have kind of, I do have great sympathy for her because I think she's somebody who has been, um, as the book goes on, it, it's revealed she's been in a relationship that was quite um, controlling, but in a way that was so subtle, she wasn't even a, maybe aware of it herself, um, mm -hmm. you know, that she has been kind of stifled in this marriage and has put up with all sorts of things that she probably shouldn't have. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a good it's a good question. There's been a lot of debate in recent years about whether, because it's a question that's not often asked about male characters, you know, about whether they should be likable. Um, and I sort of, I think she is sympathetic, but then... You know, I, I hope that other people I think will she find. Is. I mean, she is, but it just you know it veers between because also the obviously a storm, the younger character who comes in and and causes the storm. It's very clever what you've done. There. <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, is is pretty likable, but of course, you know, everyone's suspicious about what's going on, and and as a reader, you're you're wondering what's going on. She seems very friendly, and but there's there's clearly something happening uh, going on there. So. Um, and and Joe is sort of vacillating between the different groups, isn't she? Sort of cha almost changing allegiances and yeah, as as she goes. I mean, she likes so. I, let me talk, uh, tell you about a bit about. Oops, sorry, I'm just going to close that window. Um, let me just tell you a bit about Storm, about where that came yeah. from, because um, that was inspired by not not the plot, but the the idea of this uh, the arrival of a character into a group of people who who's arrival, I suppose, almost like Mary Poppins kind of causes um, 
it causes people to be shaken out of their routine and maybe out of their roles that they've been playing for a long time in that group. Um, and there's a novel, uh, I think it was 2005 it came out by Ali Smith um, called The Accidental. It's not one of her more famous books, but I really love it. And it's got it's about this very dysfunctional family that go on a summer holiday to a not very attractive bit of Norfolk. And on the first day, this very attractive young woman turns up in the house and this family is so dysfunctional that they all think she must be, they, they just don't communicate. So they all think she must be something to do with one of the others. So nobody really right. challenges her. So she just kind of stays. And yeah. gradually she, I mean, she is almost like a sort of slightly witchy Mary Poppins figure because she does uh, start to kind of resolve these tensions. She, she sort of, with each member of the family, she, she, behaves in a slightly different way and kind of brings, you know, she begins to resolve these these tensions that are on these problems that are between them. And I've always loved that book, but I've always thought what would happen if it was a darker story? If, you know, if, if this charismatic person who turns up in the middle of a group and everybody kind of likes them and, but is also is sort of, you know, unsettled by them. Um, what if that person had a kind of malign intent rather than, you know, ha having come to kind of heal things had actually come to kind of cause more strife. So that's where that the idea of that came from. I've always liked that, that idea of a group being sort of thrown into disarray. Yeah. And there's a few things at play because obviously there's the age difference. There's a, you know, a very attractive woman coming in and the way that the men and the women uh, react to her. But it's also a lot about class. Even for Joe, she sort of feels like she doesn't fit in particularly with her which is a weird you know it's a weird thing for her she is a sort of outsider that's a weird thing to go back to the group of friends that sort of aren't really your, your group of friends that you're ex you know you're a your dead husband's group of friends yeah so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of th I mean I think that I suppose that's very interesting the way I mean I you know I it, it always seems that posh people and rich people come out very badly in fiction that they're all kind of <laughs> they're all kind of sparely uh, you know, hypocritical, hypocritical, and uh, and a bit stupid as well. Really, generally, I mean, I think there's a there's a bit more to it in this in this book. But uh, do you think that's a fair portrayal <laughs> of the rich, or are they actually? They never seem to be happy in anything. If you look at um, Succession or anything like that, yeah. or, the, or, or the Crown, they're all, everyone's really unhappy. These people were not totally unhappy, but they seemed to. Yeah, I think they are all quite unhappy in their in their yeah. different ways. I think it's um yeah, it's interesting. Maybe that is a kind of maybe there's a sort of um slight resentment on the part of uh people who are writing this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> those of us who are writing it, that we want <laughs> to believe. Well, I suppose it's the same reason people read um things like uh, you know so those celebrity magazines you know we we like the idea i think we the public like the idea that somebody who appears to have everything is actually not happy it hasn't made them happy that they're they're kind of just as um burdened as the rest of us or or just yeah. as jealous or insecure or whatever it might be um and yeah I, yeah i think i mean there's something very there's something very appealing about showing people who appear to have everything because part apart Part of it is you can do that sort of lifestyle porn thing where you show as in succession, you know, or yeah. um, you describe their beautiful houses. And um, and I think we all love the idea of a glimpse into that, the world of the 1%. Um, and, but I think there is certainly uh, also some truth in the idea that um, being in a position of influence and a position of power can 
corrupt. Obviously, it doesn't happen to everybody, but it can corrupt certainly your sense of values, your sense of what you're entitled to or what you can get away with. And I mean, as we have seen relentlessly over the past few months, the idea that you know, there is a certain class of people who believe themselves to be not subject to the rules that that everybody else is supposed to abide by. And that if they choose to do something simply by virtue of them having done it, um, that that makes it all right, or they can it can be justified or excused in some way. Um, so that I think is what I wanted to show with this group of friends. You know, they have all come, well, they haven't all necessarily come from privilege, but they've all ended up uh, by virtue of you know talent and patronage and um, good education, they've all ended up in positions of of some privilege in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and Joe, you know that's part partly why I was interested in her perspective and why she's um, not quite sure where her loyalties lie in this group because she has always felt like an outsider. She she's always kind of felt that she doesn't quite belong in this group. Um, and she's very attracted to this outsider Storm who comes in who also doesn't belong but has but has more sort of boldness um, than Joe has ever had to challenge these people and their values and their um, the way they treat others. And so yeah. there's a kind of admiration for yeah. for her in that. No, it's very it's very good. And do you think is there a little bit of you in Joe? Is that in you know you? Are, I mean, it, it reminded me of myself being at university and feeling. That everybody else was super posh, <laughs> and I'd and I'd been allowed in by accident, and I sort of, you know, was overwhelmed by the confidence of all the kind of public school kids. And obviously, you've also worked in in journalism, so you may have met uh, a, certain characters <laughs> that, that may have been journalists and then gone on to be prime minister. I don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but so you've you've certainly met people who've gone on to be bigger deals as, as starting in journalism and whatever. So is is there a bit of you in there? Is is is, is that more closer to you that character? Or? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly that sense of feeling a bit like an outsider. Uh, I think most writers have felt that at, at one time or another, and. Um, yeah, I was aware. I mean, I had a, um, I, I didn't have a group of friends like that at university. My my friends were actually lovely, um, but <laughs> I definitely did meet people like that. And certainly, working in the media for for years, you do um, come across these little closed circles of people with immense privilege. And um, yeah, and and feeling, you know, that I I don't quite belong here. I'm never going to fit in here. And um, so I suppose there were aspects of that as well, and uh, an aspect of you know I had um, recently been through a breakup, so I was not I mean not a bereavement in that way, but I was kind of in the process of of um, thinking about that a lot, and and so I suppose I channeled some of that into the idea of Joe um, finding herself on her own uh, unexpectedly um, at that point in her life with a young child. So, um, yeah, and, and I, well, part of the appeal for me of writing the, these contemporary books is that I can write um, more obviously about the lives of women, which I can't do necessarily in the historical books. I mean, obviously, there were kind of interesting women around in the um, 16th century, but to to write about the concerns of women of my age and my, my friends and things that I see people I know going through, um, and those kind of issues, it's it's much obviously much easier to do that with a contemporary book. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, I think again, the, the the older characters who would perceive themselves as being feminist, sort of shutting the door basically on this younger 
<laughs> and, and very threateningly beautiful woman. I wonder whether all men are, are as, <laughs> as shallow as to, to be. I mean, maybe they are. Uh, yeah. I know I am, we're, but we're... I'm just wondering whether I wonder whether all. <laughs> I just wonder whether all men uh, would be would be as easily uh, uh, beguiled by by beauty. Maybe that's true. Uh, but it's interesting that the female characters are, uh, are flawed in that way. That they sort of. I mean, it's very realistic. Yeah, as well. I, I wanted to write about that because yeah. um, you know it's interesting to be, I suppose, kind of in midlife now and to see um, the way that uh, women in their forties, you know, there's that kind of looking around the group of people that I know and, you know, for people that I maybe don't know so well, but I um, follow on social media, there's all those debates about, you know, um, aging gracefully and naturally, or whether you, you know, people have a lot of work done and whether that's feminist and all of these questions. And and so much of it is to do with, you know, hanging on to that kind of sexual power and what happens when somebody who doesn't have to work for that, somebody who is 22 and gorgeous kind of comes into the middle of your social circle where um you know all the men in the group are coupled up but uh but they're, they're obviously none of these marriages are particularly happy and so all the wives you know that kind of jealousy that kind of envy of you know what you used to be and what somebody else ha- now has effortlessly because i think that's the thing that you know for women you do become very conscious of in you when you get into your 40s and when i handed in the first draft of this book my agent read it and he said god but the men are all so awful and i said <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um so no you're right i'm sure not not all hashtag not all men um i don't think it's interesting a novel if all the men were going yes we'll respect you and it's lovely to see you yeah well and also <laughs> but, uh... that that is an interesting thing because i didn't you know it wasn't particularly um written with it with a an eye to kind of making a big point about me too. But um, the men that I'm writing about, they're in their 40s. They are, I suppose, of um, our kind of generation where you've had to, they've had to make a quite a rapid shift from what was acceptable for, you know, the, when the guy's 10 years older than them, when they started work, the kind of behavior that was acceptable to what guys 10, you know, 15 years younger would, you know, now consider to be completely out of order. And yeah. so they're that generation that's sort of stuck in the middle where they did, you know, grow up understanding, knowing about feminism, but um, it was still okay to kind of, there were certain behaviours were still considered, yeah. you know, not and, as, as shocking as they are now. So And and for the story and, for the story and the book, it, you know, it is... Uh... It's it makes sense that they <laughs> that they would behave like they have form, let's say, yeah. in in terms of yeah. behaving that way. So it's you know it's there's obviously an element of justice to it. Although, do we ever get justice for these kind of things? Which you know, it's I, I like I, I very much like the fact that it's uh, there's a lot of ambiguity in this book, and there's a you know that that what what happens might not be exactly what your hopes happens, or might be you know it might not be fair, or it might not be. So it's it's. You know, it's 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 very true to life, I think, and and you kind of you hope that these most of these guys will get their comeuppance, but whether they will yeah. or not is oh, well, is sort of hanging in the air. Thank you, and and thank you for not kind of giving away too much. It is difficult to talk about this stuff, but yeah, <laughs> it is. but I wanted it. I didn't want it to be all kind of neatly wrapped up, where you know no. everybody who has behaved badly gets um you know it has to pay for it at some point because that that kind of isn't how the world works necessarily, and. Um, no. Some of the, you know, some of the guys who have a more sensitive conscience have obviously been kind of troubled by that over the years and have been 
suffering for it in their own ways, but they haven't. Yeah, the the idea that kind of justice is all neatly packaged up because you know when you think about it, that that isn't very often isn't how that works, particularly no. with kind of um, anything to do with with um, sexual misbehaviour. Um, no. And and you know, I love that Joe is you know has to you know, make choices as well and maybe doesn't make the choices she would hope she would make. Mm. So, you know, because the self in that's why that's why it's it carries on, isn't it? Because people have to think of that, you know, everyone has to think of their own selfish interests and their own that that their own lives going ahead and and so you you do end up making these massively compromised moral judgments. Well yeah, and I think a lot of that is to do with um I, I certainly wanted it in the book to be to do with people making choices about how something will affect their children because I think there's a perhaps we're a bit more understanding in a sense of um uh you know somebody doing something for a purely selfish reason for selfish gain and somebody making a choice that perhaps we might not necessarily agree with because it is a way of protecting their child and I think we could all you know I like the idea of trying to think myself into that um yeah. into that mindset you know how far would I be prepared to go to to protect you know my child if if um if I was put into that yeah. position and I think you know that's something we've all kind of had to think about um yeah it's no it's very it's very it's, you know it's a thing that I was left thinking about it for, for a long you know you're thinking about it days later which is always great great with a book and uh no it's 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 really terrific it's very gripping you know you 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 can't really second guess it I was trying to second guess it and I didn't second guess it so well, not entirely. So it's uh, you know it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun and it's and 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 the characters are terrific. In the in the, did you go to France to research this? Uh, but was that part of the jolly of it that you got to go out and drink lots of wine? Well, I would have loved to, but I was writing this in the middle of um, all the lockdowns, uh, which um, so I had planned to. So it it's based on a real place that I visited with my son uh when he was four so that's 16 years ago um and uh although I have to every time I say this I have to make very clear that these terrible people who own the chateau are not based on um (laughs) the real owners who are lovely uh who are currently um listening to the book on audio (laughs) uh, I think they like it um but they, yeah. So they, 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 it is a real place. It's kind of in the Bordeaux uh, region. This beautiful chateau that um, was bought up and bought and kind of done up by um, an English couple. And I stayed there, and I liked the idea of it being somewhere that's um, it's a bit remote. Everybody's been sort of taken out of their their everyday life, so you can't just kind of hop on a train to back to London. You know, they're and they're in a different jurisdiction, so they're not quite sure what is um, you know what's expected of them. In terms yeah. of what they're allowed to, oh, I'm trying not to give too much away, but you know, yeah, in terms of you know, so it's you know, they've got to deal with the French police at, at some point, but they, you know, they're outside of their everyday lives, um, and so I did do a lot of. Uh, fortunately, Google Street Map is absolutely brilliant, so I did a lot. So places that I had visited before, I was able to just go on Google Maps and kind of walk down those streets with the little camera um, yeah. all the way through lockdown. So. Uh, I, I, yeah, I will go back and visit at some point, but it was a nice way as well of, you know, while I was stuck in my house, um, in Surrey, being able to kind of imagine myself back into a French vineyard. Yeah. Very nice. And it, it feels, you know, 
when you write, it feels like it could be a film. Is that something that you're, when you're writing a book like this, are you thinking, right, well, let's set this in a beautiful state <laughs> home with a very pretty young woman in it? And, you know, and there's, I mean, there's a lot, you could really, there's a lot of action really as well in, in various locations. Um, so a lot of drama. So it, would, it feels like it could be very filmic. Is that is that something that you think about when you're writing a novel or are you concentrating on that and not thinking about the huge yeah, movie it, advances you can get. <laughs> it depends, really. No, I think I think certainly with the contemporary ones, um, there is. I suppose there's there's always now one eye on the the kind of potential TV series, um, and there is, as we said before, there is a, an appetite. I think for stories about lives of the the rich and famous, yeah. and where you can, you know, well, it's what one of the things we love about succession is that you get to look inside all these kind of extraordinary houses that most of us would never have access to. So, um, so there is a bit of that. So I wanted it to be kind of visually attractive. And then, yeah, I wanted, um, you know, the, all the characters are kind of meant to be good looking as well. And, and, and you've got this very charismatic kind of, but I think there's some good female parts in it as well. So yeah, uh, hopefully if somebody would like to turn that into a series, <laughs> I'd be delighted. Um, it, it's, I suppose it is a bit more, um, I've got a bit more of a sense of kind of dramatizing it with these books, because when I do the historical series, they're all written in the first person. So you're much more inside one character's head, which is harder, I think, to adapt that for the screen. Um, mm. Whereas with these ones, you know, you've got a couple of different points of view and you can kind of shift the perspective a bit more. So I suppose it's got a slightly more of a dramatic potential in that way. Yeah, although I feel the historical ones, I haven't read all of those, but I have read a couple of those. I feel they are, um, they, you know, they, that would surely be Oh, they're crying well. out for a, yeah, for a series, yeah. <laughs> Adaptation. No. Go for a movie, Stephanie. Don't don't settle for TV. Although TV's the well, big... Well, TV's where it's at now, because you, you, know, you, can, you can make something over several hours rather than just, yeah. uh, you know, 90 minutes. No. So, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, and what's your right... What's, as, a, as a novelist, I and mean, you're obviously still doing some journalism... Um, are you? Do you work all day on a novel? Do you sort of concentrate on a novel and then move on to other stuff? Are you? Are you? Are you is it sort of a nine to five, or are you? Are you picking up hours here and there? No, I mean I've I've refined this system over many years, and I still don't think I've really nailed you know. But uh, I have figured out over the years that um, my I do my best creative writing in the morning. So what I have to try and do is um, not look at any social media. I try and get to my desk by eight o'clock. I try to work eight till 12, um, without getting distracted by emails and, um, phone calls and things. Uh, and obviously that's much easier because my, uh, I've got an empty house now. So, um, so yeah, my son's gone off to university. So that's much easier now that I don't have somebody else in the house or, um, you know, when he was smaller and I had to get them to school it wasn't quite so straightforward but um so now I try and work in the morning and I generally find if I can get uh a couple of thousand words done in the morning then that's about all my brain's got space for um yeah so uh, yeah on a good day I can do a couple of thousand words in you know in a good morning's work and then yeah and then in the afternoon I just sort of fanning around on Twitter (laughs) and um you know that sort of thing and and how much how much preparation is the book like have you got? Have you worked everything out before you start it, or are you someone who likes to be surprised by it? It feels like so so intricate. This one that you must have had a lot of this. Yeah, I def- sure. definitely with this one. I wrote the first draft without really. I, I had a vague kind of notion of the outline right. of the plot, but I wrote it without really having mapped it out at all, and without figuring right. out um, 
quite how it was going to end, uh, which I think probably showed in the first draft. So I had to, there was quite a lot of rewriting to do with that. Um, so I then kind of came back to it and rewrote. And, uh, and at that point I had to figure out where the kind of, you know, how to build up the suspense a bit more. Cause I think that was missing in the first one. I just sort of wrote it straight through. Um, so, but with the, the historical, because they're more sort of obviously detective stories, I do plan those a bit more thoroughly um, yeah. than I do with these ones. So I, I sort of work out, you know, I, <clears throat> I always have to start with who's going to get murdered and why, uh, and then work out how many other red herrings I can throw in, you know, before, um, before people kind of get to get wise to who's who to, to who done it. So I mean, it's got that is so difficult, right? Because especially, I mean, the people who read these kind of books like read a lot of books yeah. like this. I'm imagining that they get so it must be that's what I've always when something has a twist in that you're not expecting or some or a plot that surprises you. Um, it's quite impressive to achieve, <laughs> to achieve that sleight of hand. I think when so when so many uh, thriller books exist. Yeah, and and you know, crime readers are really smart. You know, they they like yeah. you say, get, some people who love that genre will have read a ton of crime novels, and so you've you know the obvious twists, or you've you've really got to steer clear of those because um, you just don't want. There's nothing more disappointing than kind of guessing what's going to happen early on in a book. Um, and so sometimes I have, uh, I've got kind of three quarters of the way through a book and realized that I've made it too obvious. And so I've done a little switcheroo where I've actually changed the person who I thought was going to be the murderer. I've actually thought, no, let's not have that person. Let's change it. So I have done that with some of the historical ones just um, to try and kind of keep people guessing. And I've got a brilliant, brilliant editor at HarperCollins who um, has been, she, uh, she's been editing crime books for um for a long time and she's worked with people like Colin Dexter and Val McDermott and you know all the big names um mm-hmm. so I always feel if I can get a plot twist past her without her spotting it too early then I feel like I've won so she, sure. you know because she's she's so well versed in this stuff so um yeah so it's often a question of kind of deciding who you think how you think it's going to go and then sticking an extra twist in right at the end because you know just to try and sort of keep it not too obvious. Yeah, I mean, there's twists in this and then, but then, you know, I like it. It's sort of, you know, there's twists all the way, really. And you sort of think, oh, mate, I listened to the audio book. So you've got an idea of, you know, you've got less of an idea how lot, how long there is yeah. left in the book unless you're looking at how many more minutes it is. So you kind of think, oh, this might be coming to an end. And then there was, you know, that, there was a lot more and, and some more surprises to to come after that bit. So it is, you know, that, that's it's 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 great for that. I've, I've enjoyed that. And with the audio book, was there any question? You know, you've got a, a lovely speaking voice. Was there any, were you put off by the idea of having to do an Irish accent or would you never, would you never? <laughs> uh, I probably, you, you know, I am it? actually legally an Irish citizen now. So oh, um, okay, I don't know whether I'm allowed to, no, I think it's still, I think, I don't know whether that can, would count as cultural appropriation. It probably would. Um, no, I, I've never been asked to do my own um audiobooks and i think it's just because there's so many different characters i think it just makes more sense to get you know professional actors to do it and uh, i think it probably does with, in, in this case and it's a, you know it's a it, i like i love hearing the author read it but i think there is sometimes an author reads it and they you know and you kind of notice yeah <laughs> some speech <laughs> impediment or something that is just in the back and just notice something that really starts getting on your nerves so she is a it's a victoria fox reads yeah. this one and uh she's very you know she does get all the the characters very lightly as well it's not like it, it's 
it's not overplayed in terms of getting the characterization, but you, you are you absolutely one hundred percent know who's talking. Yeah. And, and no, that, I think well, that, that's such a skill to do that with yeah. kind of radio drama or audio drama. It's um, and, yeah. and it's a skill that I don't I don't have. If I if I was just reading um, a memoir, I suppose it would be different. But yeah, it's it's yeah. different. Uh, I think you do need someone who's properly trained. And I did find it again. Sometimes an audio book of a novel can be, you know, you can get distracted or it's difficult to follow. But it, this is, it does work really well as a, as an audio book as well for people who. I, I always, well, I prefer the audio books just in terms of I can do my reading when I'm doing, you know, yeah. other stuff. So yeah. it means especially for especially for this podcast, I can get a book a week done, which I don't know I could do if I was having to sit down in my spare time and read them. But, uh, but I do have That's I do have the book. As so well. do you read? Do yeah. you listen while you're kind of out for walks or uh, yeah. in the car? Yeah, or? If I'm ex- it's, yeah, can't, so like if I'm driving into London, that's like an hour there, an hour back, so you can get sort of a quarter way into a book, you know, in two sittings. Yeah. Or, and, and if I walk the dog for an hour or I go for a run for 45 minutes or whatever, then I think running is actually my best because often I, I sort of miss just having a walk with no noise because you, again, just in terms of coming up with your own ideas, yeah. <laughs> writing your own stuff, it's kind of nice. But then I, but some, I still do sometimes have an audio book on and then that's, you know, it makes me think about something else, and suddenly I go, "Oh, I'm going to have to rewind this, and work out where I was because I've not listened for yeah. for five minutes as a result." Yeah, of, uh, that's my distracted. that's my problem with audio stuff is that I just yeah. get I get distracted. So, um, yeah, yeah. But I found I found this one. You know, this one I don't don't think it was. I didn't have to rewind it at all. There was no there was no it was it was it was properly gripping. It does feel like, um, and I guess that's that's again it makes it feel slightly like it's it's got the it's got the structure of a of a drama if it works as a radio thing in itself then it's then it's um you know probably you know that tv show tv series can't be far away well, do, you, do you do you find the um having worked as a, a literary editor so you obviously done a lot of reviewing and writing about books is that does that make it harder to write your own books as well or does that make it easier have you learned a lot from the mistakes of others and the successes of others or was it always something that was that that was the plan when you were when you were yeah, mainly I mean, a journalist, I, I started literary journalism because um, I I wanted to write books, but I you know that's very few people can kind of do that straight out of university, and also I don't actually think it's it's probably not great for you to do that straight out of university because it's you, you need a bit of life experience and you need to yeah. uh, be out in the world and meet people. I think just to um, to in other way otherwise your your second novel is about a person writing a novel which um, nobody wants. So. Um, so yeah, I started doing the journalism as a kind of as a day job while I was writing in the evenings. Um and I think you know, I, yeah, I'd like to think I've been incredibly fortunate with, you know, the the authors that I've interviewed over the years and the authors that I've got to review. Um you can't help but learn from it and learn, you know, and which is not to say that um sometimes critics make the worst novelists, you know, when you actually try to do and and it's also in uh, literary journalism, it's one of those few um, art forms where the critics very often will, you know, be writing their own books. You know, you don't very often get opera critics who then decide to kind of take to the stage or, or in, in, you know, in other... Um, <laughs> or comedy critics, you know, comedy, when, exactly. when comedy, comedy critics usually do it once and go, I'll do a write an article about trying to be yes. a comedian and then, <laughs> and then they can't, obviously can't do it. Although I think Fern Brady started as uh, started in, as, as, a, as, as trying oh, yeah. it for, a, for an article. But yeah, but but who, and she turned out to be extremely good. But uh, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, so I think it's one of the, usually in an art form, you sort of have a healthy respect for the fact that you can't actually do it yourself. But um <laughs> A lot of 
literary critics are also writers. And uh, yeah, I, I hope that, you know, I'm, I like to think that I can spot when I've come up with a really clunky metaphor and, you know, to, and take it out. And, um, yeah. uh, and, you know, if I'm overwriting, that's certainly a kind of um, a failing of most um, first novelists. And I, I hope that I'm kind of getting better at weeding that stuff out as I go along. Um, and is it as an as an author now? Are you at the position where the, your publishers publishers are saying, "Where's your next book? We'll take it," or are you still having to pitch? Are they are they coming? Say we want three more of uh, this series, yeah, or no? Did, they yeah. do with the with the historical series because that's yeah. um, sold very well. I do tend to get three book contracts, um, right. so that's nice. Uh, so you know, I, I sort of know that <clears throat> that I've got work up until you know twenty twenty five or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, which is nice in a way it's it's you know that but i have enjoyed being able to do these two different have to have two different strands of it because you know i think doing too much of the same thing does sort of stifle you a bit creatively um but at the same time you know to be able to do this and make a living at it is uh, it's a great um stroke of luck really as <laughs> i how i keep thinking about it you know i i think it is um it's a great privilege to be able to do that so uh yeah and it's that it's really nice that people um, like the series enough to make that uh, a possibility. So, yeah, yeah I terrific. just keep going. And, with uh, it. Good. Well, I'm delighted you are, and it's. I really recommend it. It's a. It's a really terrific uh, novel. Uh, this is Storm. Uh, are you reading anything else, or have you read anything recently that you would think would be worth recommending to people? Oh, um, what have I read recently? Uh, I. Oh, I've read a few things for for review that. Um, let me tell you what can I tell you about. Uh, so there's a book that is coming out in. It's not out till September, but um, by an author called Erin Kelly uh, called The Skeleton Key, and she again writes these fantastic um, psychological suspense books, which are I suppose in a, in quite a similar um, vein. And this one is about um, uh, it's about a, a an author who wrote, wrote a kind of treasure hunt book back in the seventies, which became a oh. huge kind of cult phenomenon. And then it's about kind of what the legacy of that and, uh, and what happens to his children and grandchildren um, when there are still these obsessive fans out there trying to solve the, the puzzle. It's based on a real book. Um, is it based on Matt Masquerade? It sounds yes, like. that's the one. On that's why I couldn't yeah. remember the title. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. based on on that. Um, I'm, I'm in hundred percent for that book. That sounds. Oh, it's I'm, wonderful. I'm, I'm, so you've, she's, you've sold it to me. She's such a terrific <laughs> writer. So that's out in September. Um, and um, what else can I tell you about? Uh, there was a novel that was um, shortlisted for the Women's Prize last week, but it didn't win. But I think it should have done. Called Great Circle by um, an American writer called Maggie Shipstead, which is about. Um, a female aviator in the 1920s in in America. So that's um, a really brilliant historical novel too. Cool. Are you? Do you mainly read novels, or do you, is that is that what the, your interest lies as a reader, or do you branch out into? No, I, mean, I do. With the history, you've got to do your historical yeah. research. <laughs> yeah, I do read quite a bit of nonfiction as well. You know, it just kind of depends what I get. Um, you know, what I'm asked to review, what I've got to read for research, and uh, you know, I sort of try to keep up with them. Um, with uh current affairs but there's not um I'll tell you what's on my what's on my to be read pile um that is a, a non-fiction which is um one of my guardian colleagues Jonathan Friedland who also writes thrillers under a pseudonym but he's got this new book called The Escape Artist which is it's just come out about a week ago I think and it's the story of the first 
Jewish prisoner to escape from Auschwitz. Um, and it's oh, absolutely right. brilliant. It's been on Radio 4 recently yeah. as Book of the Week. And um, yeah, it, I've read some extracts from it. So that is, I'm waiting to get stuck into that as well. Terrific. Good. Well, look, um, everyone should buy your bookstorm and go back and buy your many. I mean, there's too many to mention. What's the, is, it, is it Heresy? The Heresy's first the one first the... one of the historical series. Yeah. yeah. So but they um, should start. Yeah, do you have to read those in order? No, or you don't. I mean, they, there is a kind of narrative that goes through, yeah. but um, each one is its own self-contained mystery. So you can pick up, you know, you can pick up the most recent one, which is Execution. Um, and you can start with that. Uh, so each of them, you know, it doesn't really matter if you've read the previous ones. There's no spoilers. So. And so you're, you're doing some more of those. Are you, have you got an idea for another novel outside of the series? Is, is there anything else? Or are you um, for the moment, waiting? I've got uh, two more of the historical ones under right. contract. So I've got to I've got to do those over the next couple of years. In fact, I'm finishing, hopefully finishing the seventh Bruno novel by the end of this summer. Um, and that will come out next year. And then, uh, and then I've got a couple of other ideas up my sleeve um, for what comes next. So, yeah. Good. Oh, well, I'm so glad you're doing so well. And um, it's, uh, yeah, absolutely love to see you again. Uh, thank you very much to Stephanie Merritt. Thank you also to Chris Evans, not that one, for producing and directing. I think next week's guest is going to be Laura Lex talking about her uh, netball baseball oh, great. pivot, <laughs> which I have, I've started reading. It's a bit different than Storm, but it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. So, uh, yes, I look forward to that. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Thank you. 